Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch, where we take a break from our four-part mini-series on the four questions preoccupying people's minds in the world today. The last two episodes, we've covered the two questions of how do I make more money and how do I become more likable? And thank you to everyone for writing to us, especially on that first question where it helped a lot of people redefine what wealth really meant to them. But today, we bring you a special presentation and one that we thought could not wait. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of A Higher Branch. This podcast is going to focus on those issues of being a parent, being a sister, being a brother to a sister, being a father to a daughter. It's going to be an incredible podcast because with me today on Zoom from Melbourne is Casey Edwards. Casey, welcome to A High Branch. Thank you, Sam. It's a delight to be with you today. Excellent. So we have been chatting offline before this, and I shared with you the fact that I have a 17-year-old daughter and my life completely changed. I was a 360 when I had a girl. I won't go into how it changed me as a person. Maybe that'll come out in the podcast. But first, a little bit about you because you're my hero, okay? Not only are you a passionate champion for girls and women, you're a best-selling author and a columnist at The Age and Sydney Morning Herald where you deliver really practical advice. I've read your blogs, really can relate to them. You've published eight books. And you spent over a decade before then climbing the corporate ladder as a management consultant until you woke up one morning and realized, hey, I don't want to do this ever again. And that's why you're my hero. (laughs) And I love your speaking style because you mix humor, irreverence, but you have a lot of credible research to write about issues such as parenting, work satisfaction, motherhood, even IVF, body image, which is something I want to talk about, and the diet and beauty industries. Now, you were the most read columnist for Fairfax in 2017, and you are an accomplished public speaker, but probably like all of us, haven't done much in the last 12 months. And you are a Cosmo Fun Fabulous Female Award nominee as well. We've done our research, and you live in Melbourne with your husband, Christopher, and your two daughters. And what are your two daughters' names? Violet and Ivy. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. God bless. And your most recent book is Raising Girls Who Like Themselves. The title alone really draws me in. And the stuff that we're going to talk about is the seven qualities that enable girls to thrive in a world that tells them they are flawed. And I've seen my own daughter go through this, who is absolutely beautiful, but she sees all the flaws. And we're going to talk about the social media's influence over girls in today's society, which is a common topic that pops up time and time again with a lot of faculty of experts like Dr. Jen Mann, Dr. Guy Winch. And we're going to ask the question, is there a secret ingredient to raising girls? We're going to find that out. But first of all, I want to give this podcast some context. Most of you who follow a higher branch would know that we have a holistic living framework, which we call the eight areas of life. And these are based on the eight areas of life that was revealed in my first book, A Higher Branch. And that was a fable. And in it, I use the metaphor of the trees of life. And one of the eight areas of life is the tree of family. And why that's one of those eight areas, because it fills a fundamental human need for unconditional love and support. 
So it's an important element because family gives us the courage to do things without fearing failure so we can play a bigger game. So it makes us fearless. If you ever watch athletes, you'll notice that their family is always in the crowd. Why is that? People would think that they're in the crowd because they're supporting them to win, but that's not what it's all about. They're there because they look over and they say, whether I win or lose that next shot, I have someone that's sitting there that loves me regardless. And that makes you fearless. Now, these days it is becoming more common that parents are struggling with workplace pressure, lack of sleep, poor nutrition, and financial demands. And I'm telling you, it's having a direct impact on the whole family. And in some cases can create toxic dynamics. I come across a lot in my personal coaching where there's people that indulge in negative self-talk from limiting beliefs. And the number one that pops up is my parents screwed me up. And we all know a child that we all know a child that that we've come across who will say, I can't wait to grow up and leave home. And that is a really sad family dynamic that you shouldn't put your children in a state of mind where they just can't wait to grow up and leave home. So today to educate us more in this area and equip us with some parenting protocols and specifically raising young women is Casey Edwards. And I mentioned uh, earlier that Casey is a best-selling author, but Casey from reading your stuff and listening to some of your videos, I can't help but feel that there's some personal stories in there as well. And you're speaking from experience as a parent. And I love that because I like to get my advice from people that have lived it and breathed it and not just have read it in a book. Yeah, look, my biggest motivation for writing Raising Girls Who Like Themselves was I wanted my girls to grow up liking themselves more than I did when I was growing up. And I thought initially that this was just me, that I grew up with the external appearance of happiness and success, but yeah. I was crippled by self-doubt, self-loathing and insecurity. And as I researched this more, I realized that it wasn't just me that felt like this. My friends grew up feeling like they weren't enough. Our mothers grew up feeling like that and their mothers too. And it really became clear that this is a cycle that is going through the generations that we need to break. And that if we keep parenting the way we were parented, we're not gonna break this cycle, that we actually have to do something different. And as you said, I started out as a management consultant, so I love looking at data and frameworks. And so I approached it from that lens of let's find the best information available and put it together in a way that actually works. And so I co-wrote this book with my husband, Dr. Christopher Scanlon, who's an academic, so he loves research too. And we also wanted to make sure that everything that we recommend in the book, so its foundation is credible research, but we have done it ourselves. Because when we were first-time parents, a lot of the parenting books just made us feel really bad because what we were told to do, it was impossible. It was lovely in theory, but we just couldn't do it. So we wanted to make sure that we recommended things that you can actually accomplish within your own busy, imperfect lives. So you say there is a cycle there. Yeah. And I believe you need to heal the past before you can move on. So are there some learnings that you can share with us that you discovered when you look back into that past and thought, why am I feeling like this? Obviously, it's common across lots of women, lots of daughters. Where did that originate from? We want to identify it. We want to be able to put our finger on it so we can move on from it. 
Yeah, look, I think a lot of what we talk about does relate to boys as well. I think as a society, we are becoming more external in the way that we measure ourselves. We look for benchmarks for everything and other people's opinions and likes to decide if we're okay. So I think as a society, we're heading in the wrong direction. But for girls, we're starting off in a worse position because I think girls are raised to be people pleasers. We're raised to care what other people think. And what we identified in our book was all these little micro moments where girls are actually taught what will other people think. And so what happens is we know that when a girl gets to around the age of nine or 10, she becomes hyper aware and sometimes crushed by other people's opinions of her, whether it be peer pressure or teachers or a mark on a test. And parents are going, I don't know where this comes from. She was fine. But in many ways, we have been preparing our girls for this. And just to give you a couple of examples, every time we tell a girl that she can't wear a certain thing or do this with her hair or whatever, we are saying, what will other people think? Every time we force a girl to give affection to someone when she doesn't want to. So I'm not anti-affection. My girls are very affectionate to their special adults in their lives. But if they choose not to, then I support that decision. If we don't support it and we say, you have to kiss grandma, we're saying to our girl, what will other people think? When we parent from a point of view of you need to behave yourself because people are looking at you or you need to behave yourself because you're embarrassing yourself, we're saying, what will other people think? Rather than instilling in our children that they should behave in a way that accords with their own values. When girls come to us looking for praise, do you like my dress? Do you like my somersault? And we give it freely, we are implicitly telling them that our judgment of their work or their appearance matters more than theirs. Whereas just one very simple thing that we can do is flip that and say, what do you think? It's your work. It's your somersault. Your opinion matters the most. What do you think? Wow. Okay. So I've made all those mistakes. <laughs> well, we all have, right? Because that's how we were parented. Yes. Yes. What we're talking about is there's all these little micro moments. There's thousands of times that we tell girls to care about what other people think. And then when it gets to 10, it just explodes and it becomes the center of their world, constantly measuring themselves by what other people think. And that sets you on a life of constant insecurity because it doesn't matter how good you are. You can never please everyone all the time. That's right. That's absolutely right. But is, do we need to have an element of what will people think? Do we need to temper nonchalance or non-caring with, I've got to act in conformity with certain niceties like kissing grandma? I hear this a lot. People are worried that if we don't use the shame and the external measure, that kids will behave badly and have no boundaries and be antisocial. And that is not the case at all because we have very high expectations for behavior of our girls, but we do it from a point of view of it helping them develop good values and then live by those values. So just an example, if one of my daughters went through her frozen stage where she loved to screech, let it go anywhere in public. And so if she did that in a cafe, we could have said to her, don't do that. People are looking at you. You're embarrassing yourself. What will other people think? Yes. Creating an external locus of control. But instead, we said to her, 
it's really important for us to be considerate of other people around us. Let's choose to be considerate and not sing it here. Absolutely. So that's a totally different explanation. But same outcome. Like she behaves well, but yet we have empowered her to make a good choice to be a considerate, empathetic person rather than to modify her behavior because she's afraid of what other people will think. Wow. We can stop the podcast right there. And this is the biggest takeaway. (laughs) That is absolutely so true. And I've studied psychology and that's never occurred to me. to clothes for example there are absolutely times when your daughter if you follow this advice will dress in a way that you would prefer that she doesn't but the thing is her understanding that she is in charge of her body that her opinion matters more is far more important than one poorly chosen outfit on one particular day because as our girls grow up our voices are going to be replaced by other people's voices the beauty industry the fashion industry the boyfriend the frenemy and so if we train them that they need to care what we think about how they look they're going to grow up believing that they need to listen to what other people think so it's far more important that they grow up believing that they are the judge of what's good enough for them Absolutely. Absolutely. And so give us some examples of other mistakes we make on this particular issue. Okay. Yeah. So the rule that we have that gave me so much clarity as a parent, because in the early days of parenting, I thought I am making a hundred decisions every day and I don't know which ones are going to screw up my kid and which ones aren't. It was exhausting trying to work out the right answer to all of these questions. So what we have in our book are principles, guiding principles to stick to. And, And when it comes to this issue, our rule is if it's not permanent and it's not harmful, she gets to decide, even if it's not your choice. I love that. So if it's not permanent, not harmful, she gets to decide. Okay. I love that. And that gives clarity to clothes. It gives clarity to makeup, to hair, to giving affection. Absolutely. I love that rule. So what are the other principles then in your book? I believe there's seven of them. Yeah, that's right. So what we touched on there was body autonomy and the idea that we tell our girls that they own their bodies, but there's all these little micro moments where we actually show them that they don't. And so the research shows that teenage girls, for example, are grossly underprepared for dealing with requests from boys to send nude selfies, requests for oral sex. So I... Is that a thing, is it? Really? It makes my blood run cold. So I did an interview with a group of high school girls. And these girls go to elite private schools. And they were all talking about how they give oral sex to boys. Now, when it comes to sex, I'm fairly open-minded. If it's consensual and equal in power, then that's fine. But I said to the girls, do you like it? And they said, no. And I said, well, why do you do it? And they said, well, because that's what girls are supposed to do. And then one girl, which absolutely broke my heart, she said, the way you find out if a guy likes you is if you, I won't say her language, but perform that act. And he talks to you afterwards. And this is a girl with the world at her feet, but these girls are on their knees. And because they have grown up believing that what they want to do with their body, their own feelings about their body is secondary to making other people feel comfortable. And so when we hear stories about girls who are getting texts from boys saying, send me a nude or I'm going to hurt myself, they feel like they have to do it. 
it hasn't even occurred to them that they can say no. I, I have to stop and uh, <laughs> uh, process this because are we going backwards? This is mind blowing in that yeah. we're, we're in the 21st century, but there is still that duress and that negative pressure that is placed on uh, girls. That's uh, uh, I'm totally in the dark about this. Yeah. So. And so what occurred to me, and I don't write about this in the book because our book is aimed from toddler to tween, but what yes. I filed away for when my girls are teenagers is if I don't explicitly tell my girls that sex is for their pleasure, they won't ever know. Because if you look at our culture of the way sex is presented, if you look at porn, if you even look at sex ed, yeah. sex is something that guys want and girls can either give or choose to withhold. Exactly. There's no conversation yep. about what they want for their bodies and why. So in that respect, no, I don't think we've progressed at, at all. all. At all. That's yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah, and so with these girls who were talking about the blowjobs, when I said to them, you don't have to do that, one of them cried and she said, I didn't know that. Yeah. How can they not know that? Because as we've just talked about, their whole lives, they have been trained to do things with their bodies to please and meet the expectations of other people. And the criticism that I'm getting of my book is that you can't draw a line between forcing a kid to give grandma a kiss and a girl giving a blowjob at a party. Like grandma's not a predator. And that is absolutely true. But the thing is, when are our girls going to learn body autonomy if it's not in our home in a safe environment? And any grown woman knows that it is extremely difficult to enforce your own boundaries, even as a grown woman. It happened to me the other day. I was walking down the street and a man who I knew well enough came towards me and he wanted to hug me. And I didn't want to hug him. But in that moment, I was not able to enforce my own boundaries. And I walked away thinking, I am 44, and I could not in that moment enforce my body autonomy. How on earth can we expect a teenage girl to do that when we've never given her an opportunity to practice? And in many cases, we have taught her the opposite. So how do you give them the opportunity to practice? Then, If the parents are listening right now and can relate to some of these stories, what can they start doing straight away or saying? All right, so you use the rule, not permanent, not harmful, she gets to decide. So if she doesn't want to hug grandma, you give her an option. Also, it happened to me the other day, a woman came up and she wanted to kiss Ivy. And I could tell that Ivy was very uncomfortable in that situation. 10 years ago, I would have just cringed inside and allowed it to happen, allowed the woman to kiss Violet. But now that I know, I stepped in and said, how about a high five? What about a fist bump instead? So we're helping our kids learn to be polite and adhere to social rituals, but give them opportunities to say no. When it comes to body autonomy, so the other day, Ivy cut her hair with paper scissors in her bedroom in the dark. <laughs> My daughter did that too at the age of eight. <laughs> so I compare that. When I was a girl, I did that and I got in big trouble. And the lesson for me was that my hair isn't my own. I don't get to decide what happens with my hair. But for Ivy, sure, would it be my choice that my daughter has a mullet? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> but I said to Ivy, it's your hair. Yes. You get to decide. And the same with clothing choices. That's not what I would choose, but it's not my choice. It's yours. And if you want to make that choice, that's okay. Beautiful. I love that. I absolutely love that. 
And it's an incredible takeaway from this podcast for everyone that's listening who have girls. I mean, it doesn't matter what age, you really need to start implementing those principles at the younger stage. And look, I'm with you when it comes to things like hugging. It can be difficult sometimes. I'm not a hugger. I like my personal space and my daughter's the same. And uh, there are some people that are very forceful in that their body language is very dominant and they lean in. You do feel that pressure. And, uh, you know, I've always been one that goes, sorry, I'm not a hugger or sorry, I have a cold or that's why COVID was a godsend for me. I love COVID. (laughs) It was, it was just so beautiful. I don't like close talkers, I, <laughs> loud talkers. Yeah. Can so I just say one more thing? Just, yes, please, just yes. the most critical part of this rule is that you need to support your daughter's decisions when you would prefer she chose something different. Because the lesson to the girl is you can make an unpopular choice and you will still be loved and accepted. Because that's what's driving the poor choices teenage girls are making. Yes. They're worried that they're not going to be loved or accepted. So if our girls know that even with us, they can do something that we would prefer they didn't do with yep. their bodies, if it's not permanent and not harmful, and we will still back them, then hopefully we are laying the foundation so they can make that choice when the stakes are much higher. Beautiful. So because the degrees of if it's not permanent, if it's not harmful, what about if your daughter say, my friend is picking me up, she just got her license and her friend is not a very good driver, or you don't know whether she's a good driver, or maybe it's late at night, or your daughter says, I want to go to this party. And you don't know the parents, you don't know supervision, you don't know what's at this party. Now that could potentially be harmful. Yeah. So it's a dance between giving them the freedom to really enjoy the most incredible years of their life where they'll have so much fun, but it only takes one event. And I was having this conversation with a good friend of mine recently who has a daughter, same age as my daughter. And he said, Sam, it's so difficult because we want them to enjoy life and we shouldn't treat them any different to boys because girls should be able to enjoy these uh, years. But it only takes one event where you have predators who slip something in their drink at their party. A friend of mine recently who lives down south they got a knock on the door at 2 a.m. They opened the door and there was this teenage girl who was crying, who was like, please help me. I don't know where I am. I went to a party in Manly and she ended up in <laughs> carrying bus south. Yeah. And, and she was raped at this party. Now, parents, you know, want their daughters to go out and have a great time. But there's this always this thought, is she dressed appropriately? Is she going to be careful? Should we instill a bit of fear or... If too much fear will, you know, turn our daughter into a recluse, it's a very difficult thing to go through. And I can tell you, all the people that I know with teenage daughters, they don't really know what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole conversation that we've been having in Australia over the last couple of months is that boys need to do better and men need to do better. But the thing is, our Mm. girls are growing up now. We have to arm them and protect them now, you know, so we can't just deal with how the world should be. So I agree, it is a very fine line to walk. And I I approach it, you know, from a risk management point of view, you know, how risky is it and make my decision that way. I think the other thing to think about is that kids, including teenagers, actually want boundaries. Like it, it is a relief to them when we say no on occasion. And that is part of them having the best years of their life too, knowing that we are there to put safe boundaries in place for them. Yes. And sometimes it gives them the permission to say no to their friends 
by using us as parents. As a, I'd say my parents won't let me go. And if maybe secretly saying, thank God. Yeah, no, I like that. And actually, if I could just stop right there as well, because a lot of people now would be thinking, okay, where do I buy this book? And uh, how do I know more about Casey? And I don't want to leave it till the end. So your website is caseyedwards.com. Yeah, and we do have a website specifically for raising girls who like themselves.com. It's very long, but if you go to caseyedwards.com, you can find me there. And we are actually, we've got a, a free parent masterclass running at the moment online that you can register and we talk through the research from the book. So cool. if anyone wants to find out more, they can go to either of those websites and they'll be led to the masterclass. I'll be one of the first now. Is this on, is it live or is it? On demand. On demand. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you, Casey. That's awesome. Okay. Let's download then some of the other principles. Another really big one that I believe that a lot of parenting experts get wrong is when it comes to body confidence. I think that the advice that parents are often given does more harm than good. And what this is, we are told that we can build a girl's body confidence by telling her over and over again that she's beautiful and how beautiful she is. And then one day she will believe it. And I've heard that come out of one of Australia's leading parenting experts in raising girls tell a packed room full of parents that's what they should do. But any woman listening to this will know that she has been told thousands of times in her life that she is beautiful and that she should love the skin she's in. Our friends say it to us. We say it to our friends. Dove and soap campaigns say it. Instagram's full of it. But yet most women do not have a good body confidence. So if telling us over and over again that we're beautiful hasn't worked for us, why on earth would we assume that it would work for our girls? And the reason it doesn't work for our girls is twofold. First of all, if you tell someone over and over again, a little girl, how beautiful she is, if she hears more comments about her beauty and appearance and everything else combined, which is true for most girls, that's what they will grow up hearing, she will naturally assume that her beauty and her appearance is the most important thing about her. That defines her worth in the world. That's why people love her. At the same time, what's going on is we have a standard of beauty that nobody can ever reach. It is perpetually out of reach and constantly changing. So we're setting our girls up to fail at the very thing we have told them defines their worth in the world. So what we say in our book is real body confidence is not about trying to convince your daughter that she's beautiful. It's not even about having a beautiful daughter because we have spoken to supermodels who have terrible body confidence. The key to your daughter's body confidence is for her to not care that much whether or not she is beautiful. So the idea is, sure, there will be times in her life when she wishes she had a different shaped nose or longer legs or whatever. But those moments will be fleeting because in the whole scheme of her life, it's just not that important. She's got more important things going on and a firmer foundation to build her self-worth on than other people's perceptions of her beauty. Very practical strategies is limit the beauty comments. So our girls know that we think they're beautiful, but they also know that we don't care, that of all the things that we value about them, their beauty's not even on the list. And we have to enlist the village to help us with this because people talk about appearance all the time. And so Chris and I have had to have very difficult conversations with people in our family to please stop talking about weight all the time. You know, Don't talk about beauty, talk about what our girls do and what they think 
And so we say to people that if you don't know how to talk to a little girl, just imagine she's a little boy because little boys are cute too. But beauty is not the only thing we ever say to little boys. Yes, yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. So when it comes for girls to take care of themselves with diet and exercise, is it also wrong to tell them what to eat? Is it wrong to tell them when to go to sleep and why they should go to sleep and why they should eat and why they should exercise? Because as a parent, you feel compelled to parent and say, well, don't eat that because it'll do this for your skin or don't eat that because it'll crash your energy or don't do that at night. You won't be able to sleep well and you're going to be tired the next day. Are these all wrong? No. So I, what it is, it's about how you talk about it. So when it comes to food, it's really important to remove any moral judgment from food. So for little kids, instead of talking about good food and bad food, yes, because for example, if you tell a kid that chocolate's bad food and a five-year-old has the willpower of a five-year-old, <laughs> they're going to eat the chocolate <laughs> and then feel bad, right? Yes. And so then we're instilling shame. We're laying the foundation for closet eating and food anxiety, etc. So yeah. we talk about sometimes food and everyday food. And our girls know that they have to have everyday food because it helps their bodies grow strong. It makes them learn. It keeps them healthy. And sometimes food is because it's yummy and it's because it's a birthday party or whatever. But if they ate sometimes food all the time, they wouldn't have enough room to eat all the everyday food that their body needs. I love that. This is so practical. I love recording podcasts where I hear things for the first time that I did not know. So this is absolute gold. Sometimes it's so simple, everyday food and sometimes food. I've talked about the emotional damage you can cause by using guilt to, to get your kids to stop doing what they're doing. Things like, Sally, stop eating the chocolate cake. You're going to get fat. Tommy, get off your iPad. You're going to need glasses. Fast forward, Sally's now in her 30s eating an Arnott's biscuit and she's crying and she's guilty and she feels shame after it and she's wondering where this emotion is coming from. And it's the seeds that we plant when they're at a young age. So I, I absolutely love that approach. And I have spoken about it before because the emotional damage you cause far outweighs the physical damage of eating the chocolate cake or you got to let them at least enjoy it emotionally. And the approach you take is absolutely perfect because it's, yes, everyday food and sometimes food. I love it. Yeah, because parents, we should be aware and worried about eating disorders. So our girls have a greater chance of dying from an eating disorder than they do from being abducted from a stranger on the street. We spend so much time worrying about stranger danger and we don't even think about eating disorders and how we may be laying the foundation for something that could destroy our child's life or kill them. And so there is just no place for any moral judgment or shame or anxiety with food. It, the risk is too great when it comes to food. Wow, I'm glad you called that out, Casey. What about then telling your kids to exercise, to yep. get sunshine, all the things that you've learned as a parent mm -hmm. and you want them to do, but your kids are just stuck in their rooms, they're on their iPhone or their laptop watching movies. And and look, everyone that's listening is probably saying, yeah, that, that's my kid. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, so look, exercise, we're big fans of exercise. Exercise is really important, but what matters is why you exercise. 
So what happens when, you know, children transition into adulthood is exercise started out as something they did because it was fun. Yes. And then it becomes punishment. You exercise because you ate too much. You exercise because you want to drop a dress size or burn off the extra piece of cake or whatever. Now, that's not very motivating. You know, it's not a good approach to exercise. So as parents, we need to try and maintain the fun of our yeah. kids moving their bodies in enjoyable ways and that so can sport. Be sport or mm. let's walk to school together or walk home we prioritize learning enhancement activities for our kids tutoring or whatever so we find time for that i yeah. would say find time to go to the park after school find time to walk home or help your kid try to find something that they like to do to move their bodies simply because it's fun without an objective to lose weight without an objective to win and then when it comes to sleep we have a whole section on sleep it is one of the most important things that a girl needs to like herself enough sleep because think about it as an adult how do we feel when we don't have enough sleep? What's our mood like? How is our emotional regulation? How is our ability to concentrate? How is our ability to be creative? Some of our kids are in this state of being overstressed, overscheduled and overtired all the time. And yeah. it's presented to parents as good parenting. If you've got all these extra activities that your kid does after school and then they come home and they do all this extra homework and <laughs> we think that's good parenting but it's not good parenting <laughs> is your kid getting enough sleep yeah my wife is exactly on the same page as yourself we didn't put any pressure on our daughter to do all any of these extracurricular activities in fact we moved her out of the school where that's all our parents talked about and it made their kids so competitive yeah. and so stressed at the same time so we tell our daughter the most important things for you to get enough sleep because research shows if you look at Professor Matthew Walker's work on sleep, he's from Berkeley University, shows that if you get less than six hours sleep at night, it impacts your cognitive performance by 40%. Now, even for kids, that may be bad, but imagine someone going to work the next day yeah. and being 40% less efficient than taking 10 minutes to do a task instead of the usual six minutes. So sleep is an absolute superpower. But how do you encourage your kids to adopt good sleep hygiene habits without screwing them up in, in one way or another? Because we don't know we're doing it. Yeah, look, for us, sleep is non-negotiable. Our society looks at sleep and play as something that we put in the cracks of life. Once you've done the important things, we'll do the others. We'll do sleep and play when there's enough time. We flip that. Play and sleep are non-negotiable. And we have the same routine every night and it doesn't change. There may be only two or three nights a year that our girls do not go to bed at the same time. They go to bed at bedtime. Wow. Okay. But as they grow older, the dynamic's going to change. The, yeah. the challenges are going to change. And your teenage kids are going to test the boundaries and they're going to say, I'm doing my homework. I need my laptop to do my homework. And you mentioned stranger danger <laughs> earlier. We focus so much, so much on that. But what about the strangers that are in your kids' bedrooms on their laptop, on social media? Because all these people that we scroll through on social media, they're, they're strangers effectively. Yeah. They're not people we know. I think when children are preteen or pre-tween even, they're a lot easier to manage. 
But yeah. as they become teenagers, you don't want to impose yourself too much to the point where they say, I can't wait to, to turn 18 and get the hell out of here. Yeah. So obviously you can't speak from experience, but what is your insights into that? Yeah, for me, I'm hoping that the foundations that we set when we are the most influential voice in our children's lives they will set yeah. them for teenage years but the other thing is and obviously i don't have a teenager yet we are still the parents right like we yes. do have a list of things that are non-negotiable in our house for our kids do your kids have a phone or an ipad they have screens so we write about screens in our book a lot and we take a different view on what a lot of parents have so the first thing i want to say is that the research in kids looking at screens and it damaging their mental health and their brain development is extremely weak. Even the World Health Organization who makes their recommendation of screen time has a footnote that says that it is based on extremely weak evidence. Right. So the way we approach screens is the same way as actually it's recommended by the British government that if your kid is doing everything else that they need to do, if they're interacting with real people, if they're eating well, if they're exercising, Yes. And then looking at the screen is fine. The issue is what they're looking on the, at on the screen, not the time that they're looking at on the screen. For us, we treat them on the internet as it's like them going into the city. We don't let them go into the city by themselves. So when they're on their screens, when they can be interacting with someone else, they have to do it in the lounge room. So we know what's going on. That's where we're at, at the moment. But with screens, one of the reasons that parents we have found are overscheduling their kids, which is leading to stress and not enough sleep, is a fear of screen time. They're worried that if their kids are home, they're going to be on their screen. So therefore, they're overscheduling their kids. Yeah, that's true. Yep, yep. But if you look at the research, there is very weak evidence to show that screen time is damaging. There is a lot of evidence to show that overscheduling and poor sleep is damaging. So I think that we need to have a look at that decision that we're making when it comes yeah. to overscheduling. So we need to respect and prioritise sleep, absolutely. And that's the number one priority, I think, for not just teenagers or, or children, but also adults. And the other thing with screens is that it's what they're doing. It, it is, has now become a playground for children. And we saw that during lockdown, our girls were playing Roblox and they were talking to their friends. That's how they were playing. Yes. So as far as I'm concerned, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Okay. Yeah. They're right. negotiating. They're yeah. having social connections. They're having conversations. So often I'll ask my nephews or my daughter, what are you doing on your phone? I'm talking to someone. So they say, I'm talking to someone. So for us, it's screen time, but for them, it's actual conversation. It's, yeah. a, it's a social interaction. And your view is that it's not bad, even if yeah. it's on screen time. Yep. Okay. So one of the rules that I, I teach people who, and these are people that I coach who are adults, corporate executives. Now ask me, we understand that digital dementia is bad and social media is bad and too much screen time is bad. How do I know? There are so many people saying too much screen time is bad for you. Apple's now measuring it and I can look at my phone. It'll tell me how much screen time I'm getting. How do I know when I'm getting too much and how do I know where the sweet spot is? Mm -hmm. So the rule that uh, I teach people is that I look at my screen time for the day and then I match it with my exercise time, meditation time, socializing time. And if the screen time is greater than those activities, then I say it's too much screen time. 
So you should always match it or be greater than. So when I say screen time, I don't mean on laptop working or like right now, recording a podcast, watching Netflix. Yeah, passive consumption. Passive consumption, exactly. If I've done one hour of passive consumption that I look, I have to do an hour of exercise or meditation or whatever it is to balance it out. Is, is That's a rule that I instinctively came up with. Is that a good rule? Yeah, I think so. Because it's all about getting the balance right and how it fits in your life. And I think screen time, the current way that it's framed, it's something to fear. It's another thing for parents to feel guilty about. It's something for kids to feel ashamed about, something for them to hide from their parents. Whereas if we just accept it as another component of our lives, we can all just relax a little bit more. I love that. You've just taken this huge load off my shoulders because every time yeah, you see your kids on, and I have two boys as well, and you see them and they'd like quickly put their phone down. And I'm thinking, you didn't need to do that. And I'm thinking, well, I instilled that guilt. It is a fine balance. But let's talk then a little bit about social media. So we've talked about screen time, but we haven't really talked about influence of maybe not just social media, but the media in general on body image and how it drives you know, consumerism and it drives this feeling of inadequacy. I'm not complete by that unless I look like that. There's a pandemic that's going on of a different kind and people are not noticing. There is a pandemic of lip injections, face injections, Botox, liposuction. It's crazy. It's out of control. I can go into a restaurant and there'll be at least 50% of people in there. And you can see the procedures because they're grotesque. The first thing I view these women who are doing the cosmetic surgery is absolutely trapped with no right option. To actually risk your life or undergo pain or spend the equivalent of a house deposit, which is what young women are spending in the first seven years of their injectables or whatever, to do that, how much do you have to hate yourself? So we just like to point at these women and go, oh, you're so vain, you're so superficial, you look ridiculous. But let's look at what drives that. For them, that is the least painful option for them. And that is an absolute tragedy. So I think that we should be approaching these women with real sympathy because they've grown up in a world where they think that is how they need to be. So how can we short circuit that happening to our daughters? So a lot of the groundwork that we do and we recommend in the book is to constantly have conversations with girls about how everybody is different and we're all supposed to look different. There's not one way of looking and there's one way of being. And we have those conversations. We don't ever talk about how bodies look in front of our girls. It's just not something that we discuss. So we try to delay the objectification that girls have for as long as possible. We don't let our girls watch advertising. And that's really easy to do in a house now with, you know, with streaming services. It, it is, but on social media, mm-hmm you scroll through and there are a lot of Instagram models that all look the same. They all have the same lips, the same eyebrows, the same hair, same body shape. Yeah. For social media, my advice to parents is that follow the age recommendations. If your child is not 12, then Instagram isn't for them. And that's the first thing we should do is these apps aren't for young kids. So let's delay that as long as possible. The other thing is that we need to be careful not to just blame social media for these problems, that we are seeing a very visible expression of body hatred with the injectables and the lips and and the cosmetic surgery. 
But the body hatred behind it has been around for generations. We spoke to four parents who told the same story of their little girl who wants to, who want to slice the rolls on her stomach with scissors. And these girls are six and seven. They are not on social media. They don't have Instagram oh, accounts. Like it's absolutely heartbreaking. So it's a distraction to just think that social media is the cause, that what we're doing is we're our, our girls are growing up in a world that is absolutely obsessed with female beauty in one way to be beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you're right. That's been going on well before social yeah. media. I think social media, however, is spreading it faster. Yeah. It's like a virus and it's spreading on social media. Yeah. So certainly conversations about media literacy and helping your children reflect on, does this make them feel good? Like I worked out in my twenties that when I looked at a, a fashion magazine, I felt bad. Yes. That's right. So I made the decision not to look at fashion magazines. When I'm in the doctor's surgery, I'll pick up House and Garden instead of a fashion magazine. <laughs> I don't want to ruin my day. You mentioned that and I thought, yeah, before social media, I remember lots of TV and lots of uh, articles written about how magazines was impacting women's psychology and propagating body hatred. Yeah. So yeah, I have interviewed women, like models, who we have called supermodels in Australia, who have terrible yes. body images. And I have interviewed women whose bodies, there are not many of them, admittedly, whose bodies are well outside of our definition of beautiful and their body yes. image is fine. And they have just grown up, they got lucky and they grew up in families that did not ever talk about beauty, thinness. And as I said before, sure, they might wish for different physical characteristics, but it doesn't define them. And I look at body confidence in the way of singing. Like I can't sing. I would yeah. love to be able to sing, but yeah. it doesn't ruin my day. It yeah. doesn't define my self-worth. And yeah. that's what we want our girls to get to when it comes to their physical appearance. We want them to know, genuinely believe that they are built on a firmer foundation than how beautiful they are in a particular moment. Yes, I love that. That's really good. Casey, is there anything else that you think parents would want to hear from you, the principles from your book or, or a topic that I haven't touched on, which you think is very important? Yeah, um, there is just the one thing I want to talk about, which is, it's the last chapter and it's a girl who likes herself is herself. And this is the difference, we call it the difference between stone parenting and seed parenting. So both of these approaches come from a place of love. But stone parenting yes. is the idea, and we started off as stone parents, is the idea that you have a vision of the perfect child in your mind. And it is your job as a parent to sculpt this child, to get your chisel out and chisel off their weaknesses, decide for them what their strengths and interests and friends should be. And there's a lot of pressure on parents and social media has made that worse. You scroll through Facebook and every kid's overachieving except yours. You, know, you <laughs> yeah. feel like you need to push this kid and mold this kid into what you think they should be. Yes. Seed parenting, by contrast, is looking at your child as a precious, beautiful, unique seed. And it's our job to provide the right structures and nutrients and environment, but ultimately to trust them to decide for themselves who they want to be and to trust them to grow and bloom in their own time. Because the thing is, what every person wants is to be seen 
and valued for who they are right in this moment. And all of us have the power to give that to our kid every single day. And so then whatever's happening in the outside world, our kid knows that as soon as they walk through that front door, we are going to love them and see them for exactly who they are in that moment. And I think that if we can make our house that place, then so many of the other problems that come with parenting will just disappear. Beautiful, beautiful. So I'm starting to get the sense that it's probably safer to underparent than overparent. When I was growing up as a teenager, teenagers such as myself who were brilliant because they were in a household where they were just left to their own their devices and the parents didn't interfere and control. So I just thought I'd make that observation, but just, I do want to touch on one more thing and that is homework. When your child is squandering time and you think, okay, look, you should be doing your homework. And sometimes it gets to the point where you say the wrong thing and say, you're going to fail if you don't do your homework or look at Sally next door. She got a great mark. You should be doing what Sally's doing. Uh, I don't make that mistake, but <laughs> so many times I want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I stop myself. We address it specifically in the book based on evidence. And yeah. it is this, the evidence yeah. for homework being beneficial is negligible in primary school. Homework yes. does not lead to greater academic outcomes in primary school. What homework does cause is it's the number one sources of tension within families. It causes yes. tears, it causes anxiety, it causes overparenting. Because you could argue that since there's very little academic, if any at all, academic benefit from homework, the only benefit from homework is independence and time management. But if your parent is making you do your homework, then you're actually disempowering the kid. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't I have to worry, dad will make me do it when I need to. Or I don't have to worry, mum will do it for me in the morning or they'll write me a note or whatever, which completely undermines the only benefit that there is for homework. Can I tell you something? So my daughter said something to me the other day and it just floored me. She said, oh, look, HSC is really difficult. And it's so competitive and there are these girls that are just like uh, studying six, seven hours every night and they're going to bed at one and they're waking up at seven. I don't know how they're doing it. And she turned to me, she said, I don't think I have a good work ethic. Why didn't you make me study harder when I was younger? And that floored me because I'm thinking it's because I didn't want to put pressure on you. Yeah. And I know a lot of parents that have fallen in that category that are listening now thinking, well, yeah, I don't force my kids to, mm -hmm. to do homework either, but is that a disservice to them? Because there are kids, especially from new Australians, mm -hmm. right? I was a new Australian once and my parents applied the pressure. I'm thinking, would I have achieved a law degree and have my own legal practice if my parents didn't do that? So what is the right thing to do there? <laughs> okay, I think work ethic, real work ethic comes yeah. from a love of learning. It comes from curiosity. It comes from not having a fear of failure. All of those things are internal. They're not imposed on us. So my goal for my girls' HSE, so I'm at the point where we're picking high schools for my oldest daughter. There is yes. so much pressure on the number that you get at the end. That's right. I don't, I don't care about the number. So if my girls get to the end of year 12 and they do not have the right number to get into the course that they want to do, you can fix that in a year. They can do art, science, travel for a year, and then come back and do the course they want to do, right? That's one year. If your kid gets to the end of year 12 and they are self-harming, they are crippled by anxiety, they 
have no social interaction, like those problems, they could be for life. Wow. At the same time, I totally agree with you, but do they need someone to remind them to study or to get enough sleep or to eat properly so they can uh, study better? Would they feel bad if they didn't get the mark that they want? I guess a lot of that pressure comes from their peers anyway in the school. So there's no use parents supplying that same pressure at home. I would say your job is to be the coach. <laughs> Something for a lot about, right? The whole point of education is mastery. It's for our kids to learn to do these things for themselves. We're helping them learn to be adults. So we are their cheerleaders and their coaches on the sideline, providing the support that they need to make the decisions that they need to make to do yeah. what they want to do with their lives. Yes. And so my husband, Chris, works in universities. He sees mm -hmm. these kids who have come through with a lot of pressure and a lot of spoon feeding and they really struggle when they get to university because they haven't actually learned the most important skills about learning, which is being self-directed and curious and to love learning. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Casey. It's been an eye-opening podcast. It's incredible. I could talk to you for hours and I hope all our listeners have uh, learned something new. Also, helped our listeners to relax a bit there's a few things that you said in there that just i just thought yes just take the pressure off parenting so really incredible value you've passed on to us thank you so much casey and i am going to sign up and do your master class and i look forward to uh, reading your book as well so thank you again for coming uh, on a high branch podcast oh it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me excellent thank you Okay, everyone. So thank you for listening. Again, we always produce this content with the greatest of love and respect. And we certainly hope that we've honored your time with some information that brings you value in your life. Until next time, as always, live consciously, my friends. <laughs>